0: Reaching the fault lines of today. Welcome to Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network. This is Dr. Zudi Jasser. Welcome to another episode this week of Reform This on the Blaze Podcast Network. Always great to be with all of you. Hope you're having a good summer. Hope your families are healthy and safe and you're all back to work and doing well. Are we ever going to get out of this COVID mess? Well... Slowly but surely, I have a feeling, as I've said before, many have said that, oh, it'll just sort of vanish after Election Day, regardless of who wins. We've talked about that before. There's some other things to talk about today, and this is the program where you hear, you have an opportunity to hear from what I humbly believe is a patriotic American Muslim who can give you a lens through foreign policy, through the battles against radical Islam, and a lot of what's happening abroad and domestically regarding Islamist groups and otherwise, not only pointing to the need to reform, but how do we get there? What are the steps? And this week, we saw some changes, especially in the country between, rather than diplomacy and diplomatic relations between Israel and the UAE, that I think herald a transformation. A transformation. We'll talk about that today. So, without further ado, the wires are a buzz with a deal deal tied between the UAE, the Emirates, one of the Gulf states and Israel. And you may say, well, what's the big deal? Well, first of all, It's a diplomatic breakthrough that, oh yes, Biden tried to take credit for saying that they laid the groundwork, which tells you how important it is, because he wasn't going to criticize it. There was no criticism at all. It was an important, important deal. And as the Wall Street Journal reports that this uh, caps more than a quarter of a century of deepening but secret business and security ties between the two countries that signals a major shift in the geopolitics of the Middle East. Why is it a major shift? Well, ultimately, the, remember, you had the axis of one side, the Arab countries, that always, always did lip service to the Palestinian cause, no matter how radical it was. And you see today, the, the Erdogan regime constantly stoking the fires for the Palestinians against Israel, radicalizing the Palestinians. You see the same with Qatar, and you see the same with Iran. But there was a shift, as you and I talked about two three years ago with Saudi Arabia, the embargo against Qatar. They were increasingly, increasingly antagonistic with animus towards Iran, with sometimes feeling they were on the brink. Remember, there was even some operations in which Ships were attacked, in which oil fields in Saudi Arabia were attacked. Never a full-on, full-on hot war, but certainly asymmetric warfare, and certainly a warm war. Let alone a chronic now cold war that's deepening. So that pushed, that pushed the Gulf states, which were being pushed away from Russia, away from Iran, away from Qatar, and away from Turkey, into the arms of the United States and Syria, and not Syria. Syria is on the other side, obviously, into the arms of the United States and Israel. And I think you may say, well, that that, that should be it. That's why it happened. Well, this deal, remember, there was that whole, all the gyrations of the complexity of the Israeli-Palestinian deal that Jared Kushner was going to lead, and it was very complex, and uh, some people felt it was sort of dead on arrival. This is the way to do a Palestinian deal with Israel. Is obviously you do it by slowly taking away the populist oxygen that was fueling the Arab world, which the Palestinians were part of, fueling the propaganda of anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism. And by doing that, you begin to weaken to weaken the Palestinian radicalization and Hamas. So we we talked about what, what the negative drivers are away from Iran and Russia and into the arms of Israel and America. But that's not enough. It's not enough to change the ideology because, mark my words, just like I told you that the Saudi reforms of MBS were artificial and the evidence i used was that the imams were not talking about the reforms that mbs was talking about the imams were not justifying driving by women the imams were not justifying women going to work the imams were not justifying and changing the interpretations of the quran that they promulgated in their translations and the anti-Semitism and otherwise. That was two or three years ago. But now in the Emirates, in some of the largest mosques in Abu Dhabi this week, imams were talking about the legitimacy of Israel. Imams were talking about why friendship and closeness to the state of Israel are key to the longevity and the peace in the Arab world. Nothing about supremacism, nothing about Islamic states, and also very much anti Islamist and anti brotherhood. That is key. And and I will stand by my words that when you see the Imams, granted you'll say, well, they're paid for by the state, etc. They've always been paid for by the state. It's always been an autocracy. Nobody said that this is a move that becomes, makes the Emirates a democracy. But it certainly, it certainly is a step forward that will begin to shake the foundations of Arabism as a fascist totalitarian ideology. And Islamism already is estranged from the Emirates and Saudi Arabia, etc. Because of the last two to three years in which you've seen a huge shift Remember, surprise, surprise, Western Muslim organizations of the legacy groups of the Muslim Brotherhood are quick to condemn this peace agreement and this opening of declarations and opening of diplomacy and normalization of diplomacy and relations. That normalization, the Muslim Brotherhood legacy group of the Council on American-Islamic Relations wants nothing to do with. Oh, surprise, surprise. They're labeled because they're part of the Brotherhood Network and progeny. They're labeled by the UAE as a terrorist organization. Now, when that came out, I uh, had some difficulty with that. Not that they did not and are not the Muslim Brotherhood. I truly believe they are. But the Muslim Brotherhood in Kuwait, the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria, is not the same individuals that are Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups in America and when they call themselves other things that's about an ideology and once you start labeling a group of foreign terrorist organization that has a strict a strict guideline as i testified to ted cruz's senate committee subcommittee yes the brotherhood is an a terrorist organization but it should be initially labeled as such in egypt and syria and kuwait and yemen As cases in point But not globally I did not believe in a global designation Though you take the oxygen from the motherships Especially in Egypt And the rest will die in the vine Without having to do so in London's office of the Muslim Brotherhood Or in the legacy groups of the Islamic Society of North America Or the Council on American-Islamic Relations Islamic Circle of North America All these Muslim American society the, the, The Muslim Brotherhood legacy groups Will die in the vine too but they also have some autonomy. But we will be freer to counter their ideas. Back to the topic at hand, though. The, the issue is, what does this mean? Anwar Garash, the Emirati Minister of State of the Foreign Affairs, said this was more or less something that has developed, I would say, organically and in many, many areas. He said the establishment of diplomatic relations transformed it into something tangible. And there's no doubt that now that Israel, and we saw this with Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia is going to be a little tougher nut to crack, but Saudi Arabia has already been meeting with Prime Minister Netanyahu and Israeli leadership in ways that had never even been imagined five years ago. And as the Wall Street Journal reports, like the Emirates, other Arab nations have quietly developed Budding business, security, intelligence ties with Israel. And this is actually the other really important point. These countries have played both sides of the propaganda equation for decades. Erdogan is a classic hypocrite where Turkey's doing a lot of business with Israel and, and as part of NATO and uh, part of a, a Western alliance of defense to protect Israel which is our obligation as the only democracy in the Middle East. And yet, Turkey spews anti-Semitism and cries for the development of a neo-Ottoman empire and the caliph and the resurrection of the Al-Aqsa Mosque as he permanently made the museum of Hagia Sophia what should be a church, and made it into a mosque, which he claims it was, and had promised so many of us in the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom that that was not going to happen. So this guy's a hypocrite. Many of the Isla- All of the Islamists are hypocrites. And a lot of the business relationships in the Arab world, on the one hand, they shared ideas, they shared work product with Israel. They thrived on the ground. But then when it came to diplomacy and it came to preaching and, and television interviews, they spewed anti-Semitism and radicalized their youth. Well, with the UAE now, that has come to an end. And look, the biggest sign, as many of the counterterror experts this week have said, you remember when they said we were going to move the embassy in Jerusalem and all hell was going to break loose? Didn't happen. Because when you have an administration like the Trump administration in that, that makes it clear to the world, to the Arab world, that this is the way it's going to be, they've got to deal with it, there's no, there's no yield for violence and radicalism. While when you had President Obama in place and other presidents that did not say what they said and walked the walk, attacks were imminent. And nothing's happened this week since normalization of relationship between Israel and the Emirates. Israeli businesses have been meeting with their Saudi counterparts in Riyadh in restaurants, secretly, as the, as the Wall Street Journal talks about. 2018, Netanyahu made a rare visit to Oman. Morocco is looking at opening up uh, commercial flights with Israel. And last year, the foreign ministers of Bahrain and Israel had their first public meeting in Washington. These are countries that are probably going to follow suit. Bahrain, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Morocco, Saudi, um, Egypt. You start checking off these countries, some of whom are part of the GCC, Qatar was going to be kicked out of the GCC. You see an alliance that now will begin to end the Arab demagoguery against the Jewish people and against the state of Israel. And now we can begin the real reforms. How are they going to? This is why it's important for the Saudis. Yes, they might sign on to it. But again, it will not be real until even our opening prayer in the Quran, which many of us that pray five times a day say 17 times, or more times a day, the Saudis have a little footnote next to the part of the opening uh, verse of the Quran in which we say, may we go the straight path, not the path of those who've gone astray. That's it. That's all it says in Arabic. And the Saudis have in parentheses like the Jews and Christians. That's not in the Arabic script. It's in their footnoted Wahhabi version. So, their little narrative speaks to not only the opening verse, but every sort of penetration of ideology of the Saudi Kingdom has been anti-Semitic. The radicalization of groups like al-Qaeda, ISIS, and others is a fruit that didn't fall far from the Salafi Islamist, Salafi Jihadi radical ideology that has a lot that it shares with the Wahhabi ideology. So, if they normalize relationship with Israel, that's going to have to be addressed. If it's not, then just like the wrestling in (laughs) Riyadh, just like the women driving, might appear to be good steps for rule changes... But rule changes don't mean ideological change. And for the Emirates, it appears to be an ideological change. But they've always been more moderate. The Iman Ziyad family has always been less enamored with the Sharia state, Islamism, etc., Then, not only the Muslim Brotherhood, but obviously a lot of the Sharia monarchies. Let's look where we came from. 2009, the Emirates denied a visa to Shahar Peer, one of Israel's most celebrated tennis players, who was planning to compete in the Dubai Tennis Championships. She would have been the first professional Israeli athlete to compete in the UAE, but the initiative was derailed after organizers said they couldn't let an Israeli compete on their soil. The following year, this is a great historical point that the uh, Wall Street Journal points out, Suspected Israeli assassins using fake passports killed a top Hamas leader at a Dubai airport. The killing threw relations into turmoil. The UAE identified two suspects and sought international help in securing their arrest. Now, obviously, the UAE has declared war on the Muslim Brotherhood, Hamas being obviously one of the leading elements of the Muslim Brotherhood, so things have changed. That was pre-Arab awakening, by the way. Emirati officials have bought Israeli spyware, according to lawsuits filed against companies. And there has been significant increase in business relations for some time, and now it's becoming more diplomatically formal. And by the way, this is not just Israel reaching out. Emirati business leaders uh, have reached out to Israel, extending an invitation to them to take part in the 2020 Dubai Expo. Israel had planned to set up a pavilion to showcase technology and its eagerness to work with the Gulf. The event obviously has been postponed now because of COVID-19, but I think the announcement now was not delayed as it was made this week about their normalization of relations. There's now the Trump administration's moving forward in a non-aggression pact between Israel and the UAE, Bahrain, Oman, and Morocco. But instead felt that they could do it one country at a time. and I think it says a lot that the UAE decided to lead that. Now, the UAE's influence in, in Washington is significant. Their lobbyist is been uh, high-profiled in uh, a lot of major media about the significant influence that the ambassador and their lobby has. You cannot, though, deny the fact that you have an Arab country founded on decades, half a century of anti-Israel fomented propaganda echoed through the mimbars, the pulpits And the televisions of Al Jazeera and elsewhere. That now has normalized relations. And not a peep. From any significant Islamist leadership. Now Iran. Assad. They're speaking out for sure. Nasrullah in Lebanon. Very upset. Part of Hezbollah obviously. But those are the right people you want to upset. The influential Emirati ambassador I talked about was Yusuf Taibe. He wrote an op-ed in an Israeli newspaper which carried an explicit warning for Israel that its plans to annex massive Jewish settlements in the West Bank would torpedo its hopes of official ties with its Arab neighbors by killing the prospect that the area would become part of a future Palestinian state. Quote, Again, from the Wall Street Journal. In the UAE and across much of the Arab world, we would like to believe Israel is an opportunity, not an enemy. He wrote, we face too many common dangers and see the great potential of warmer ties. That began a new round of talks and produced Thursday's breakthrough this week. Israel agreed to suspend plans to annex parts of the West Bank in return for a plan to normalize relations with the UAE. So, we won't even get into the whole thing about settlements, which is another subject, but not necessarily another subject, but just a, a issue related to what is a more complex solution to the Israeli-Palestinian issue. But for a Arab country and its Islamic leadership and otherwise, to recognize the state of Israel and its normalization is just a, a massive move, and I think bodes well for future peace in the middle east now you saw the the brookings qatari tools like shadi hamid who tweeted out this week you know it's amazing to me so many folks say oh he's so moderate he's not necessary he's not an islamist and they and his book called islamic exceptionalism i've tried to engage the guy on uh, social media and elsewhere and he's unresponsive My theory is that while Qardawi and Tariq Ramadan and all these global scholars are Islamism 2.0, my theory is that Shadi Hamid is Islamism 3.0. Sort of a, a, a democratic separation of powers type political Islam that's still Sharia based and Sharia statist. Read his book, then we can talk about it. My point about bringing him up is He then tweets out saying that, quote, by the way, Brookings, his fellowship, and elsewhere has significant Qatari funding. Of course, it's not exactly an accident that Israel was one of the region's few democracies. And it prefers, it prefers that its Arab neighbors not be democratic. If democracy in Arab countries would entail a much lower likelihood of peace deals with Israel, democracy would still be serving its purpose, to reflect public sentiment and allow citizens and elected officials to express their preferences on controversial foreign policy issues. So, here's the conspiracy theory, that ultimately it's Israel's fault that there's no democracies because they make deals with dictators so that those democracies never evolve, those, those countries don't become democracies. So here's a guy who's on CNN and wherever he might be and portrays himself as such a moderate. Talk about a prime example of oversimplified agitation propaganda promulgated against Israel by U.S anti-Israel establishment, that's what he really represents in that comment. The U.S. anti-Israel establishment says that American foreign policy, especially a certain group, don't care about the Middle East, don't care about Arab citizens. They just want to keep dictatorship in now. There were certainly policies to that effect in the 60s and, and, and 70s. Yeah, there's no doubt that certain policies had that effect. But he's blaming Israel for this. It's the same conspiratorial mindset of the, the endless war comments that uh, uh, Tulsi Gabbard talks about. And and actually, they can't have it both ways. The whole attack against neoconservatism was that they were trying to democratize the Middle East and that that was impossible, that they needed to stay dictatorships because they can't be democratized. So is it we're against the neocons? <laughs> which have now become a pejorative because they've been attacked all the time of wanting to change foreign governments, when in fact the Arab Awakening arose on its own, from Libya to Egypt and Yemen and and Syria and and Iraq, even in Iraq, yes, Iraq, Saddam Hussein was long gone, but there have been demonstrations in Lebanon, there have been Cedar revolutions and, and otherwise. But this comment on the heels of an Israeli UAE agreement you now have commentary from leading american islamic scholars at brookings and elsewhere saying oh this is just simply entrenching and that tells you how effective it is by the way because if the opinion is is that entrenches the leadership makes them more benevolent and liked then the whole gig is up about the anti-israel position isn't it then the anti-Israel, anti-Semitic position is a loser even in the public sentiment. So which is it? They try to paint things in a way that fit their own narratives, especially the Islamists that are anti-Semitic and supremacists for the Palestinian and apologists for Hamas. This deal is historic on many levels. Mark mark this week in history as a time when a tectonic shift happened in Arab-Israel relations. Many may try to minimize it, throwing whatever may stick against the state of Israel and against the Emirates, but I give them one question. If this isn't a big deal, why hasn't it happened before? Last, I want to talk to you about Syria more sanctions this week more sanctions against Syria now I still am befuddled as to how there can be any more sanctions it's clear that the Caesar Act has had a huge impact there have been if you've been following Syria I've talked to you briefly here on this program about how the cousin of Assad Rami Makhlouf who was one of the primary leading thugs, economic thugs, of Syria and Lebanon that controlled most of the cellular networks, has had a falling out. Here's a guy who was a playboy, sort of extravagant, showing off his Lamborghinis and everything else he had that he sucked off of the blood of the Syrian people and the Lebanese people. He had a falling out. And has now, they believe, gone into hiding and protection by the Russians. Which tells you that even as the Caesar Act was being put into place, the Caesar Act took sanctions to another level. That not only sanctions against Syria, Assad, and their family, but sanctions against friends of friends. Sort of like the Facebook phenomena, right? You have your friends... But then do you let friends of friends see your Facebook? That opens up a huge amount of people that can see your social media. Well, same thing on sanctions, folks. And the Caesar Act said, well, what about Russia? And started to have huge impact and businesses stopped. European businesses, American businesses that were doing business with Russia and others that were doing business with Syria then stopped. And that a huge economic impact and... Russia started to believe, it said, they did not feel that the cost of that was worth Bashar. doesn't mean that there's going to be a revolution that will be victorious after eight years of the Syrian revolution. It just means that at least the Assad family may need to step down. And may they rot in hell. But... Who? We'll see. It does appear. We might be and we've said this before, so I don't know what to believe anymore, but it's different when the Russians are beginning to will it. So and again it had to do with our policy. But this week, even beyond the the Caesar sanctions, and Caesar was the name of one of the victims in Syria. The Trump administration was readying new rounds of sanctions against Syria. The U.S. officials said planning to expand its blacklist by focusing on financial support networks outside the war-torn nation a renewed effort to coerce Damascus into peace talks. President Bashar Assad secured military and political gains over the last few years, and now the U.S. is continuing to target its financial lifelines. Just to give you some of the targets, for example, right now that were announced this week, Mr. and it's Dr. Assad's son, his British-born wife, by the way, from the Ikhlas family, who's, whose father is a cardiac surgeon in London. And it's believed that might have been squirreling away a ton of the money so that it's not in the Assad family name. Trump administration has sanctioned members of the Assad family and others under the Caesar, as I said, Syrian Civilian Protection Act, which seeks to pressure the regime over violence against civilians. They're beginning to look at supporters, associates of the Syrian regime in Lebanon, the Emirates, as well as real estate and other firms in Europe tied to the Assad family and to leading Syrian businessmen. They blacklisted Iranian and Russian companies and officials for their support of the Assad regime using separate sanctions powers. This is maximum pressure, no different than they're doing in Iran. Maximum political and economic pressure targeting the regime. And to to complement the other story, James Jeffrey, the State Department's special representative for Syria, warned that the UAE, the Emirates, could face punitive action if anyone is found aiding the Assad regime. And he said, the UAE knows that we are absolutely opposed to countries taking these diplomatic steps of rapprochement with Syria. Those who aid the regime in any way are a potential sanctions target, he said. fascinating isn't it i think it's good news syria is always going to be in the news it is a a cancer that is is festering and growing it's now bled over into lebanon as lebanon's been also become a client state of iran as syria basically has and i can tell you that while many of you might feel that there's no solution ultimately the cancer needs to have all of its oxygen cut off and once it does and it dies off, hopefully the patient will survive. But the patient cannot survive with that cancer. And neither can we. Iran is not a regime that is going to somehow moderate. There's never been a moderate Iranian ruler. There's only been those who are, I'm sorry, since the Khomeini's revolution, obviously, we're talking about. But there have been only those that are less extreme and less open to their goal than the others. But they're all part of the Islamic Supreme Council. And Assad, yes, he's part of the Ba'athist party, which may not be Islamist in his charter, but now in the past 10 to 15 years has basically become part of the Shia crescent extending from Iran, as Iraq has and as Lebanon has. So things are beginning to settle out, folks. Pressure points are continuing. And while we languish in this response to COVID 19 and we turn in economically, the world around us continues to evolve. And I promise I'll keep you up to date. And we'll continue to point out what we should learn, what we shouldn't, what are the lessons for today and tomorrow, and where do we go from here. God bless. Stay safe. Follow me on Twitter at Dr. Zudi Jasser, D R Z U H D I J A S S E R. And also at Reform This Radio. God bless. Share this podcast with your friends. Talk to you next week. Reform This with Dr. Zudi Jasser on the Blaze Radio Network.